Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and we're continuing in our series uh, where we're looking at Paul's first missionary journey and thinking about the theme of proclaiming the gospel. And uh, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 13 uh, this morning and the next week begin to work through chapter 14. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and this morning we will look specifically at verses 49 uh, to the end of the chapter, to 52, and uh, I'm going to begin reading for us, just to give us a little bit more context, I'm going to begin reading for us in verse uh, 42. So Acts chapter 13, verse 42, and this is on page 922 in the Bibles that's, that are provided for you. So Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 42. This is God's Word. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And their disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this book, the book of Acts, and the record we have of the spread of the Christian faith in the first century. We're thankful, Lord, for how Jesus continued to work and move by the power of Your Spirit through His people, the church. And we pray, Father, that You would continue to do, and we thank You that You are doing such a work today. We pray that You would continue this work in and through us here at Crawford Avenue. And Lord, as we spend time in Your Word this morning, looking at what happened in Antioch of Pisidia so long ago, Father, we pray that that movement, that work, would continue even through us here today. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by enjoying, making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And uh, that is what we want as a church. It is what we pray for. And by God's grace, we can rejoice that He is doing it. 
by His grace, we've seen this happen even over the last several years as we've witnessed conversions, as we have grown together in the Lord, as we have seen any number of pastors and missionaries sent out from our congregation. But what if in the coming years God were to do it on a much grander scale so that we were to see more conversions, more spiritual growth and discipleship, more pastors and missionaries being sent out from our congregation, perhaps the entire community impacted by the ministry of our church? What if we were to experience a powerful movement of God among us? What we might call a revival. That is something that Christians pray for, right? It's something that we pray for. We pray for revival. We pray for a spiritual awakening that would profoundly impact us, that would impact our community, that would even ripple and impact the nations. And what if God were to answer our prayers? Would we know what to expect? Would we know, if God were to answer those prayers, how to respond? I'm not an expert on the history of Christian revivals, but I've had the opportunity over the years to learn and read about various revivals that have happened in Christian history, and it's one of the things that has surprised me, is that in a revival there are conversions, lives are changed, society is impacted, ministers and missionaries are raised up and churches are established, all those things are wonderful and glorious. And at the same time, when revivals occur, oftentimes there are disputes among Christians over what is a genuine conversion and what's not true Christian conversion. There's trouble that comes from false teachers. There's divisions in the larger church. There's opposition from the outside world. In this way, what we see is that revivals are characterized by both great triumphs and victories on the one hand and by particular challenges and opposition on the other. This is what we see in Acts chapter 13. This is the context in which we find Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. A significant movement of God has taken place, and we've seen this over the last several weeks as we've been studying this passage. We might call what's happening here in Acts chapter 13 revival. Gentiles are responding to the gospel in mass, and a movement like this has ripple effects, not only locally, but it goes beyond regionally, and we'll see that here in our text. But one of the things we see in our text as well is that this movement of God is characterized, yes, by great victories and triumphs, but also by particular challenges and opposition and resistance. So what if God were to answer our prayers? What if God was to do just a great movement, a great work of His Spirit among us? What if we were to truly experience revival? Would we know what to expect? And would we know how to respond? In our text this morning, we see five results of the movement of God. And I want us to look at each this morning. What we'll see is that the move, a movement of God often results in, one, the spread of God's Word, Two, the persecution of God's servants. Three, judgment on God's enemies. Four, new opportunities for ministry. And fifth, a spirit-filled and joyful church. 
That's our outline this morning. If you're taking notes, I will repeat those points as we go throughout. I know those are a little bit longer. First, let's consider this. A movement of God results in the spread of God's Word. Look there in verse 48 of chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. I'm sorry, the verse I want us to look at specifically here is verse 49. Look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now, it's worth noting here as we consider the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and Pisidia, it's worth noting here again the centrality of, of God's word in Paul and Barnabas's missionary endeavors. Remember that it was on this missionary journey, so the missionary journey starts at the beginning of chapter 13, it was on this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas first stopped on the island of Cyprus. And we noted that as they stopped in the island of Cyprus, their ministry there was marked by a ministry of the Word. So look back at chapter 5, verse, thir- in, in, uh, verse five in chapter 13. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Then look at verse 6 of chapter 13. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, here it is, who summoned Paul, Barnabas, and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And then look at verse 12. Of chapter 13. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, here it is again, at the teaching of the Lord. And so then they move on from Cyprus, right? So that's their ministry on the island of Cyprus. And they move on from Cyprus, and now they're in the mountainous city of Antioch of Pisidia. And notice what happens when they minister in Antioch of Pisidia. In verse 15 of chapter 13, we read, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. And the next 25 verses are a record of Paul's sermon that he delivers in the synagogue as he preaches the word of God and from the word of God proclaims that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now look at verse 44, chapter 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Then verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, that is, you thrust aside the word of God, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Then look at verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then again, verse 49 that we just read, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In many ways, this is a very simple point, and yet it's such a vital point to see. And not only to see, but to get a conviction that gospel ministry, New Testament ministry, the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and the apostles was a ministry of the word of God. If we were to summarize Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Antioch of Pisidia, we could summarize it this way. Paul preached the word in verse 15. Folks gathered to hear the word in verse 44. Some opposed the word in verse 46. Others glorified the word in verse 48. And the word spread through the whole region in verse 49. That is a summary of Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Antioch of Pisidia. 
It is a ministry of the Word. This is a pattern we see repeated over and over again in the Bible. It's the reason why we study the Scriptures together on Sunday mornings in our cohorts. It's the reason why expositional preaching is at the center of our gathered worship on Sunday mornings. It's the reason why we gather together on Wednesday nights and we study the Bible together. People become Christians. Lives are changed. Churches are established. Communities are transformed. God's purposes are fulfilled through the proclamation and ministry of His Word. And notice that this is not just the ministry of Paul and Barnabas here. It's not just their work. They were faithful to initially proclaim God's Word, the message of God's Word, that salvation comes through faith in Jesus. But then notice here in our text the reverberating, multiplying effects of God's Word. You see it there in verse 49. The Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Well, how does this happen? How does a whole city come to hear the Word? How does a whole region come to hear the Word of God? Well, of course, those who heard the Word of the Lord from Paul and from Barnabas then began to spread it, began to share it with others. And this is how God moves. This is how God works. Oftentimes, there is a preacher of God's Word. But when a movement of God takes place, there's not just a preacher of God's Word, there is a people of God's Word. And the people of God take up this Word. And they begin to talk about it. And they begin to explain it. And they begin to share it with others. And my friends, listen, you can do this. In fact, many of you are doing this. And we want to train and equip all of you in how to do this so that we have an army of men and women and youth and children who are reading their Bibles with others and sharing the Word with others. Parents with their children, youth with their friends, a man at work with his non-Christian co-worker, a mom with another mom down the street who's a baby Christian, When God moves, you can be assured that He moves and He works through His Word. And we can expect that that movement will look like, yes, faithful preachers who are proclaiming God's Word, but then it will be faithfully spread through His people as they read it, as they explain it, as they share it with others. So a movement of God is characterized by the spread of God's Word. Secondly, what we see is that movements of God often result in the persecution of God's servants. The persecution of God's servants. Look there in verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So those who opposed Paul and Barnabas had access, they had connections to powerful women and influential men, and they persuaded the women and influential men to stir up some trouble for Paul and Barnabas. And as a result, there was this concerted effort to do so. They conspired together to persecute, to oppose Paul and Barnabas. And we can just say briefly here that not much has changed today. Even in our own country in which we enjoy many religious liberties and we praise God for that, 
Christians oftentimes, even today, increasingly are experiencing certain news outlets and social media and politicians and institutions conspiring together to oppose Christian convictions and to suppress Christian voices and influence. Of course, we know this opposition is far more overt and it's far more pronounced for many of our brothers and sisters who are faithfully seeking to live out the gospel in other parts of the world. But nonetheless, we experience that here today in our own context. What we see here in our text is that when a movement of God occurs, when revival breaks forth, we can expect that God's people might encounter forms of opposition and persecution. So when a movement of God occurs, there are some who will be drawn to the church. We see that in verse 48. But also there will be others who are repelled. We see this in verse 49. We recognize a movement of God in large part because when a movement of God, when a revival takes place, we see that there are more and more people responding to the gospel, more and more people being drawn to the church than we would naturally expect or anticipate. And yet, so so we see this in our text, right? So we see it in verse 44. And this is what's happening in Antioch and Pisidia. In verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. In verse 49, we see that the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. And at the same time as this movement of the Lord is drawing some, it is repelling others. Notice this. This is actually a pattern here in our text. So we have the proclamation of the gospel. in The first section here, verse 15 and following. It's about 25 verses where we have Paul preaching the gospel in the synagogue in Antioch. And then following that, we have two positive responses. And both of those positive responses are then followed by a negative backlash. So notice this. Look in verses 42 to 44. This is the first positive response to Paul preaching the gospel in the synagogue in Antioch. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So there's this new hunger, desire to hear the Word of God and this message of salvation. Verse 43, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. So here we have this positive response to the proclamation of the Gospel. But notice that is then immediately followed by a negative backlash. In verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Then in verse 49, we see that there is a further positive response to the gospel. And this time, the positive response is not just local in Antioch, but it is spreading so that the larger region is responding positively to this word. In verse 49, we read, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And then in verse 50, we see there's an immediate negative backlash. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So my friends, this does beg the question. If we desire for God to do a movement among us, if we desire to experience a significant movement of God, are we prepared for this? We might assume that if God moves, if there's revival 
If there's a true movement of God, then of course that would alleviate, that would eliminate all persecution, right? Everybody would love us. They would appreciate the church. They would be thankful for our work. They would celebrate our presence. Perhaps, but not necessarily. That's not what we see in Antioch of Pisidia. What if a movement of God, what if genuine revival means that opposition and persecution is not eliminated, but rather it intensifies? Are we ready for that? Are we prepared for that? This is, of course, not without precedent. We see this happen over and over again in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember, we see this illustrated particularly well in his interactions with the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Do you remember this encounter? The demoniac was a man who was possessed by demons and the city where he resided was was terrorized by him. They couldn't shackle him. They couldn't chain him. They were fearful of him. He cut himself and cried out all day and night. And Jesus cast out the demons. So the Bible says he was in his right mind. He was restored to sanity. And, And Jesus, when he cast out the demons, he sends them into a herd of pigs who then run off a cliff and they drown. Now this is revival, right? This man who the whole city knew has been in bondage to demonic oppression all his life is finally set free. He's in his right mind. And what what might we expect at this point? We might expect that the people there who lived in that area, maybe they would give Jesus the key to the city, right? Maybe they would ask him to run for mayor. Perhaps they would name a street after him. But no, that's not how they respond. Do you remember how they responded? Mark chapter 5 verse 17 records, they begged Jesus to depart from the region. And why? Because the death of the pigs represented a loss of money for the local economy. And they valued the financial return on the pigs more than they valued the eternal soul of the demoniac, and more than they valued the spiritual life that Jesus was offering them in Himself. You see, my friends, we have to realize not everyone is interested in a movement of God. Not everyone wants revival. And so on a smaller scale, be prepared, my friends, If your sister or your mother that you've been praying for for years comes to faith in Jesus and is converted, don't assume that everyone in your family is going to be as excited about that as you are. If some of your friends at school start attending Bible study and their lives start to change, realize that other friends in your peer group might deeply resent the changes that are taking place in their lives. If your coworker comes to faith in Jesus and is baptized and becomes a member of the church, understand that your boss might not like how this new involvement in a church is changing the relational dynamics at work. And understand, my friends, that that opposition, that resistance, is not reason for you to doubt God's work. Rather, it is evidence of God's work. When a movement of God occurs, we can expect that there will be the spread of God's word. We can expect the persecution of God's servants. Third, we can expect the judgment 
of God's enemies. Judgment on God's enemies. Look there in verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Now we don't, realize, we don't know everything that happened here. Luke is giving us a summary of the events. But we do know that the persecution intensified to such an extent that finally Paul and Barnabas were being, in verse 50, driven out of their district. And then you see here in verse 51, which I just read for us, how Paul and Barnabas respond. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Now that might seem strange, but it's actually somewhat of a common practice in this day. It was a Jewish practice, a Jewish custom. We read about it this morning. Um, Alan read it for us in Matthew chapter 10. When a Jew returned from visiting a Gentile land, they would often dust the dirt off of their feet before re-entering into Jerusalem or into Israel. And it was a symbol that they were cleansing themselves. They were ridding themselves of Gentile impurities before they entered into the Holy Land. What we saw in Matthew 10 this morning that Alan read for us, and also we see this in the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus instructed His disciples to practice a modified version of this tradition. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 5, before sending out the 12 disciples to minister, Jesus declared, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We see this again in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Jesus there sends out 72 of his disciples to minister in his name. And Jesus declares, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So according to the Lord Jesus, Jesus is indicating here that this symbolic gesture was a declaration of judgment upon those who rejected God's Word, upon those who rejected the Lord Jesus and His Messiahship. It was a declaration of judgment upon those who rejected the gospel that was proclaimed in His name. And of course, what we see here in these verses, again, is that when God moves, when there's a revival, yes, many, by God's grace, will repent of their sins. Many will trust in the Lord Jesus and experience His grace, and their lives will be transformed, but not everyone responds this way. Some will harden their hearts. Some will become more stubborn and recalcitrant in their unbelief. Some will reject the gospel. And what our text indicates here is that they will be all the more liable, they will be all the more worthy of judgment, because when the light of the gospel was most bright, when the movement of God was most apparent, when the opportunity to respond to the gospel was most open and most available, they persisted in unbelief. In this way, revival means salvation for many, and it means judgment for others. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, how will you respond to the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ? Just to be clear, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. 
And three days later, he was raised from the dead. So that if we turn from our sins and we trust in the Lord Jesus by faith, we can be forgiven of our sins and we can have eternal life with God. How will you respond to that good news? For those who receive this good news, it is salvation. But for those who reject it, it is judgment. Fourth, a movement of God often results in new opportunities for ministry. New opportunities for ministry. Look there in verse 51 again. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. By God's grace, we've had the opportunity to send out from our congregation over the last year a number of missionaries who are serving the Lord overseas. And one of the things that you um, encounter when you interact with missionaries who are serving overseas and in particularly difficult places is that when missionaries face persecution and when they face opposition, sometimes uh, there's a struggle to know when to stay, how long to stay in an area where you're experiencing persecution and opposition, and to know when you're free to go and when you're free to leave. And what we see from our passage this morning is that there is a time to leave. There is a time to go. We see in Paul and Barnabas's missionary endeavors that there were times where they would experience opposition or resistance, and they would meet that opposition with boldness. They would continue to preach and to disciple and to minister. We see that in Antioch of Pisidia. When they are first opposed, they don't immediately leave. They continue to minister. But then other times, and we see this many times in the book of Acts, we don't have time to go through them all this morning, but we see this happen over and over again, that persecution rises to such a level that it is in fact warranted to leave and to move on. In fact, we see in the Gospels that Jesus told his disciples to do just this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, which we read this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And Paul and Barnabas here are essentially communicating, even when they're dusting the dirt off of their sandals, this is part of what they're communicating in that symbolic gesture, is that they can, with good conscience now, move on from this city. They are communicating that we were faithful here. We faithfully taught and ministered the Scriptures. We did what we could do here, and our work here is done. And they left. But notice that Paul and Barnabas saw the opposition, the persecution that they experienced in Antioch of Pisidia as a segue for a new opportunity for ministry. In other words, as one door closed, they had the faith and they had the boldness to see that another door for gospel ministry was opening. You see it there in the words, they went to Iconium. They obeyed the instructions of the Lord Jesus. They went to the next city. And Lord willing, next week we will look at their ministry in Iconium as we move into Acts chapter 14. But again, this is a pattern that we see in Antioch of Pisidia in terms of how Paul and Barnabas respond to opposition. So if you go there and look in chapter 13, verse 44, we see, and this this is the pattern I want you to notice, there's a positive response to the gospel, there's opposition, and then Paul and Barnabas respond with faith 
by seeing that this opposition actually leads to new gospel opportunities. Notice this. In verse 44, there's a positive response to the gospel. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45, we get the opposition. But then the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now notice how Paul and Barnabas respond in verse 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So here we see there's opposition, and immediately Paul and Barnabas discern in that opposition, they shift open door to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. If the Jews reject this gospel, we will proclaim it to the Gentiles. Now notice this happens again in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So there's a positive response to the gospel. Verse 50, there's opposition. But the Jews incited the devout men of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. How do they respond? Verse 51, they shook the dust off from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. New gospel opportunity. And this is one of the ways, and we see this throughout the book of Acts, this is one of the ways that God advances the work of the gospel. This is one of the ways that the movement of God continues to propel forward, continues to spread. It's through opposition and resistance, which then leads to new gospel opportunities. Perhaps the clearest example of this is in Acts chapter 8. It's a major turning point in the book of Acts. We see in Acts chapter 8 that Paul, he's not yet converted. He's persecuting Christians. He approves of the execution of Stephen. And we read in Acts chapter 8, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we read, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Do you see how that happens? God is moving forward. This work, this gospel work, through persecution and opposition, which then leads to new gospel opportunities. Closed doors for ministry propel the gospel forward. That is the mysterious work of our sovereign God. Closed doors for ministry lead to new and exciting and unexpected open doors and possibilities for further gospel ministry. And so, my friends, if we are to experience a movement of God's Spirit, if we're to experience a revival, it's not just that we should expect that there would be opposition and resistance. We should, in fact, expect that that opposition and persecution may very well be the means by which God will expand the movement and propel the revival forward. Fifth, movements of God often result in, and will result in, A spirit-filled and joyful church. A spirit-filled and joyful church. This is our last one. So look at Acts chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
If this actually reminds us of what Paul has, or I'm sorry, Luke has already recorded in chapter 13, verse 48. Look there in verse 48, he writes, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then, of course, in verse 49, the word of God is spreading. And in verse 50, we get persecution. In verse 51, they shake off the dust from their feet and go to Iconium. And then in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection there? In verse 48, they are glorifying the word of the Lord. They are rejoicing in the Lord. And in verse 52, they are filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. We should just note here as well that this is what's being recorded here is a fulfillment of God's promise. You remember back in chapter 13 when Paul was, verse 47, chapter 13, verse 47, when Paul is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah who will bring salvation to the world. He declares there Isaiah's prophecy over the promised Messiah, in chapter 13, verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here, in verse 52, we see that promise being fulfilled. Here, what we see is that in the person of Jesus, the Gentiles are coming to faith. The Gentiles are being gathered in. These are not Jews, but these are those who are far off from the promises of God, the Gentiles, who are now rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord, who are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And why do they have this joy? Why are they rejoicing? Why are they glorifying the word of the Lord? It was because of the very specific promise of the gospel that came to them in Jesus. Do you remember what Paul proclaimed to them? Do you remember the promise that Paul held out to them? Look back in verse 38 and 39. He said in chapter 38, verse, or chapter 13, verse 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the good news of the gospel. If you've been working and trying and you've been keeping various religious practices and observing various religious practices in order to make yourself right before God, in order to justify yourself before God. This is the good news of the gospel. You can be freed from all of that through faith in the Lord Jesus. This impossible standard that you've been trying to reach and can never attain, you can forsake that and trust in Christ and He has met that standard for you. He has paid the perfect penalty for your sins on the cross, and He has been raised so that you might know life. And my friends, when there's a movement of God, we should expect that those who come to understand that message, 
that those who embrace that message by faith, that those who trust in the Lord Jesus, that despite all the various tribulations or hardship they might be experiencing in their lives, despite the opposition and resistance that might come against them for placing their faith in Jesus, despite all of that, knowing that their sins are forgiven, knowing that they have life in Christ, knowing that their place in heaven is settled for all eternity, they will rejoice. They will glorify the word of the Lord. They will be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, quote, A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or the dawning of the day without light. End of quote. This is why Jesus came, in fact. This is why God has saved us and redeemed us in Christ. He has saved us and redeemed us in Christ for many reasons. And we could mention many of them. But one essential reason is for our joy. That we might rejoice. That we might glorify the promise of God's word revealed in the gospel. That we might be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So my friends, may we continue to pray for a movement of God among us. For revival to take place. So that our joy in this good news might deepen. And through us that joy might spread to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, we know that even as those in Antioch and Pisidia were responsible for the word they heard. And some responded in faith and believed. And others spurned it and rejected it and came under your judgment. Lord, we know that we are responsible for this word that we have now heard. We pray, Father, that we would receive it by faith, and as a result, we would know your joy, the joy of the forgiveness of sins, the joy of hope in you. And Father, we do pray that in our own day, we thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in our church and through us. And Lord, we pray that in our own day, we might know more of the presence and power of your Spirit. We pray that your work might advance in and through us. And Lord, when that time comes and as you continue to work and move through us, Lord, may we not be discouraged or knocked off track by opposition or resistance. May we continue to be faithful and see, Lord, how you are sovereignly working and moving in step by in faith with boldness into new gospel opportunities. And Father, we pray that through us, your joy might spread to others, that others might know the joy of the gospel and life in Christ. So, Father, come now and apply this word to our hearts and to our church by your Spirit. And we pray that you would do a great work for your great name's sake. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.